welcome to the Green Room Podcast presented by Handshake Agency. I'm your host, Neil Griffiths. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This one, uh, as you'll hear me say multiple times in this podcast, is a very special one for me because I've been chasing it for so long. My guest is Tim Minchin, of course, Australian legend, comedian, musician, singer-songwriter. His new album, Apart Together, his debut album, is out on Friday. Uh, I sat down with Tim over Zoom, of course, to talk about the album, um, why it's taken so long in his career to to release his debut release. Um, And we also spoke about, uh, for his fans, of course, would know about his big move to L.A., uh, obviously, in I think it was 2017, he well, he was working on a on big DreamWorks production called Larrikins, um, within the Australian production. Hugh Jackman was attached. He was working on this for some time, four years in fact, when they cut the project altogether uh, and he moved back to Australia. So we spoke a lot about his time in LA, his relationships with people and executives over there. Coming home, uh, we spoke a little bit about Upright, of course, very successful Australian TV show that... Uh, debuted last year um, and I believe potentially there could be a season two we talk about that and of course we talk about the album called Apart Together so check it out here is me with Tim Minchin on the green room all right well Tim Minchin it has been a long time coming for me probably not for you at all but for me definitely welcome to the green room podcast sir thank you Neil how how it's good it's good to be on the green room podcast i'm very pleased how are you today good do you know it was really sad is like when you first announced the apart together album i think mm. what very early this year i immediately reached out and said how do we get tim on this podcast and i said oh can we do it close to the release date i was like great when is it and they're like november i was like fuck <laughs> well it's a funny thing because i've sort of been trailing this record for ages and obviously releasing singles and in that time other stuff's happened i've done other press but yeah you do want to um you do want to try and put as much back as you can because, like, because we're talking this week, people listening to the podcast right now will be able to, you know, immediately act on it. Whereas <laughs> if you do it in March, people have forgotten by it. By the time you're flogging them something, they've forgotten about it. Oh, it makes complete sense and it's fair. But for me, it's just it's shit. So I'm glad been, we're doing it now. It's been a terrible year purely because you had to wait. Exactly. Nothing else has been wrong. No, nothing. Just Everything else is great. Correct. Um, I think, yeah, when this... I mean, tell me if I'm completely wrong here, but I think in February, early February, um, your deal with BMG was announced. Yeah. And that was kind of coincided with, oh, by the way, he's going to be releasing a debut album. And I thought, holy shit, how we've gotten this far into your career without it, without an album. We're, yeah. what, we're, we're going to release this very close to, to the release date of the album, which is Friday, but we're re- recording this, what, on a Monday afternoon. How, how are you yeah. feeling now, what, four days away? Well, I mean, I feel good, except I don't, yeah, I'm not very good. I'm not wired to um, see the significance of particular moments in my life until they've been. Um, I get very caught up in the logistics and in in the quality of the thing. And uh, I'm not like, I'm not very good at like champagne and yay, we did it until the dust is clear. Um, uh, That's just a temperamental thing. Um, But also I've been... You know, calling it my debut album is absolutely accurate. I've never commercially released a studio record. Obviously, I've released a lot of stuff into the world, but this is a completely different thing for me and a very, uh, it's a. it's been my goal for almost 30 years to put out a record. So it's significant. But like at the beginning of last year, I put out, I released a song called um, 15 Minutes of Shame. 
And I said, here's a single we've made. I'm going to release music all year until I've accumulated an album. And that was two years ago almost. And then I started just recording bits and pieces and building it up. And around the middle of last year, we sort of just, two things happened. One is I decided 15 Minutes of Shame was too much like a comedy song and I wanted to break that a bit cleaner. And the other thing that happened is the quality of what we were producing started, like my manager started going, you should take this proper seriously. We should do a record deal and not just release it as, you know, because everything I've ever done has been really just indie. You know, even my tours, obviously there's big business around them these days, but basically I just tweet tour on sale and everyone buys tickets and they come and it's very much uh, an indie vibe. Um but happily, BMG really liked what we're doing and I got to sign a record deal, which is, means different things these days than it did 20 years ago, but I was stoked. And, um, yeah, and now this massive long <laughs> project is finally coming to a head. Mm. Maybe this is the wrong word for it, but just reading up on some interviews you've done this, this past year um, for the album, is it fair to say that you've had a, yeah, maybe it's the wrong word, aversion to... Uh, incorporating comedy into this album you didn't want to make a comedy album you just wanted to make you're a musician who wanted to make an album yeah that's right I mean I I've been active in this industry I guess I started writing songs when I was about 10 I wrote my first songs for a a theater show when I was 17 um I played in you know I played you know, piano bar, piano, and in disco bands and in original bands all my life on and off. And I've written scores for Broadway musicals and I've made telly and stuff. And for me, it's this is just another step in me doing the things I've always wanted to do. Um, the question of whether or not it should be comedy is only uh, the sort of question that people who got to know me as a comedian would ask. For me, it's like, well, I mean, comedy was like something I did for six years. It's not, it's not, it's not for me like um, this isn't uh, uh, an experiment in, in not being a comedian. This is just me writing songs, which I've always done for a short period of time. I pressed that skill set into satire almost exclusively. But, um, but obviously uh, sort of behind everything I've done, um, is just a general interest in writing songs that tell stories, I guess. So, um, so, but, but to answer the question less obtusely, I don't think punchline. I don't really like comedy songs outside of a theatre. Uh, uh, when it's live, obviously, there's an audience and it's you and them, and there's punchlines and stuff. But songs with punchlines in a studio, just it's not something I would want to listen to. So it's not mm. something I'm going to produce. And driving that point home, was it a calculated move to release Leaving LA as the first single from that? Yeah, well, it was when I realised that I didn't, that 15 Minutes of Shame wasn't, was kind of um, confusing the question. Uh, I I made a a point to make sure that the first song we released was um, sort of a better better, uh, indicator of where I was going. I mean, all this talk of no comedy, there's heaps of, fun lines in uh, Leaving LA even and, and lots of quirky lyrics in the whole record. It's just not punchline It's not like, ooh, what's the funny rhyme going to be, you know? Mm. Um, but, yeah, I did want to sort of state my intent with that first release. 
How do you feel about that release? Obviously, it has been out for a few months now. Most of your fans, at least, know the story of of you going to LA and now coming home back to Sydney. Well, yeah. Not Perth, but Sydney. Coming to Australia. Um, where does that song sit for you now? Now that people kind of know that story and the meaning behind that song. Um, oh, it's fine. I mean, I just write about what I know. I, I am in this live streaming gig that um, for your listeners will be live right now and they can go and watch it. It's only live for 48 hours. Um, I tell a bit of a story about that song. And the point I make, you know, I write a lot of songs that are quite sort of honest and uh, bearing my soul. But that that's different from, that's different from only bearing my soul i don't write them in order to bear my soul i use soul bearing as a jumping off point to write an interesting song right Mm. so i wouldn't go i want to express this without then going yeah but how is that an interesting thing for other people to listen to i don't write them for me Mm. i write them for the audience um if i want to express my soul i just drink a bottle of wine and you know talk a lot to my (laughs) friends um but but the experience of la you know i had that sort of cliched you know, spending a lot of years doing a lot of work and then some corporate takeover, um, you know, burning it to the ground. And But that's not, the, the song is um, is influenced by that, but really what it is is a breakup song. What, what interested me about the emotions I felt when I left LA is that I have a real love-hate relationship with it or, or an uncomfortable loving relationship with it. We loved our time living. We lived in the Hollywood Hills. We lived near the park. We had great friends. We really enjoyed our time there. But on the other side, there is, it's a sort of ugly place in a lot of ways. It's no, the glitz of it is all veneer. Right? Mm. And so really what I, my experiment was, was can I write a breakup song about a city the way you might break up with a person in that, in my experience, when you're trying to break up with someone, you kind of, you're trying to bring yourself to make the decision to break up. And in doing so, you, um, you're itemizing all their flaws, you know, well, you know, they do this, they do that, that, but even as you're doing that, you know, you're trying to convince yourself because actually you love them for their flaws. Mm. You know, that, that's the, that's the idea behind that song. The, the impression you're meant to get listening to that song is, hold on, that guy actually loves that city. Mm. The way he's talking about it as if he's, as if he is leaving, but it's somehow it's sad and incredibly nostalgic, isn't it? All the description of, of the, the, the minutiae of the places actually sounds like fondness as well. It's meant to anyway. Well, that's why I like, especially a lot of the guests I have on who are in America or specifically LA, I've, I've told them, you know, I, pre-COVID was planning to move to LA in May and then reading about your story, hearing this song, I'm kind of like, fuck that. I'm scared now. Yeah. No, don't. You've got to go. You always got to go. You always got to try things, you know? I mean, this album is riddled with the slight complexity of being someone who's had amazing opportunities to have grand adventures, you know? So I, Sarah and I have lived in Perth, Melbourne, London, LA, now Sydney. We've, done a lot of cool things you know we've met a lot of amazing people and had a lot of sparkly nights and red carpets and 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 this album slightly reflects on um the downsides of that and the downsides obviously i'm not whining at all but the downsides include a sense of dissociation a sense of not really knowing where home is 
a sense of missing people a lot and I tour a lot so I'm away from my family a lot. Mm. It, um, it has all that it has all that in it and, and a, sort of has a sense of how fast time's moving and how everything becomes a bit of a blur. But but at no point would I take back all those journeys, not even the ones that ended in tears, you know. And you, you should, of course, go to LA. The, the, it's not meant to be an anti-advertisement for it. However, it's worth listening to that song and keeping an eye out for, for the, some of the things it points out. I mean... You know, the, 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 the main line in that song that is very directly bitter is uh, the studio executives who never made a thing blaming others for their failures, taking credit for their wins. I mean, put that on a T-shirt and don't forget it because that's what happens. The artists take all the risks, the creative risks, and the executives, when they win awards, take credit, and when they don't, they blame the artists, you know. But, I mean, we all do that. Artists do that too. When they have a fail, they blame the executives. You know, you should definitely go with the, well, I wouldn't go soon, brother. Yeah, no. Yeah, and that's the other thing, that they're fucked right now. But, I mean, yeah. I'm going to give a cheeky plug to themusic.com.au because you did a, a print interview, again, start yeah. of the year, around that point, and I was reading that article and you said something really interesting was that a lot of these executives, they want they want your vision, they want your talent and you go over there and then you deliver that and they go, no, thank you. What, what's this? Like, do it yeah. this way. Well, it's a, it's a creating uh, big commercial art is um, a tug of war always because that there's that incredible desire, especially in America, for innovation, right? So you want to be the person who makes the next Minions movie. I mean, not the next sequel. I mean, creates <laughs> the next IP like sure. that you want to be the person who made shrek so you're looking for innovation that's tugging in one direction and that's the thing that makes you hire a an aussie you know foul mouth comic to co-direct your hundred million dollar movie right that that desire for innovation on the other side is huge fear because where there's huge money to be made there's huge money to be lost and of course these executives job rely on you know, they can't just walk away from a failure and whine about how the audience are morons or whatever artists do. They, they cop it, you know. So, so there's this tug of war between fear and risk. And, um, you know, if you want to, I've whined a bit about Hollywood, but I haven't, I've always been careful not to say, not to say poor me. It's simply reflecting on what it's like to have four years of your work taken away from you, especially when you're a workaholic or at least a, you know, um, pretty addicted to it like I am. I, I wanted to reflect on that because it knocked me sideways and people asked about it and I always try to be honest. But, but I chose to swim with the sharks, right? I didn't know they could shut your movie down three quarters done. I, I must admit no one ever said, oh, by the way, you could be four years in and 50 million bucks down and they could chuck it in the bin. I didn't. I was very naive. Mm. However, I chose to go to a place where art is commerce. You know, I didn't, no one guaranteed that I'd have my vision respected. You know, if I want my vision respected, I do what I subsequently did, which is get the hell back on tour where no one can tell me shit Mm. except people on Twitter, you know, (laughs) having their very, very well-considered opinion. Did any of this, was this a conversation you had with your team, with your family, back when you got this pitch to go to LA and what was it, 2012, you would have got that pitch? Yeah. I guess I, when I get an idea in my head, I, I'm pretty hard to resist. And there were lots of reasons. Sarah actually really was on board 
she she liked the idea of moving to America for a bit. I, I've never really looked to America as a place I aspire towards, but mm. um, I did want to do this project. Um, but we had rose-coloured glasses, not not like I thought it would all be warm and cuddly. I thought I would have to fight for my vision. And as you said earlier, it's always an interesting thing to go, well, you hired me and now you're telling me not to be me, you know. And by the way, you only get to where I get if you're pretty dogged, you know, like like they go, oh, we'll hire that comedian who also wrote a Broadway musical, you know, and then they... And then they're surprised when you're really passionate about your work, mm. as if as if being a comedian and and writing West End musicals was something that I stumbled on casually. You know, mm. I'm like, no, guys, I am all in on this project on every level. I'm not doing it for the money or because I want to get famous. I'm doing it because I'm obsessed by it now, mm. and this is how I think it should go. And all the executives, American executives, standing there looking uncomfortable. As if to say, don't be passionate. This is banking, not art. You know, <laughs> like, um, but all that was fine. I just, it was, I didn't, I didn't. A, a corporate takeover was not something I'd plugged into the yeah. possibilities. Yeah, it's interesting as well. I mean, I think I listened to an interview you did a while ago as well, and you said when you moved to LA, you were you weren't some famous person. That oh my god, Tim mentions in LA, you were no one. Oh no, no. But knowing your relationship and distaste for fame anyway that's probably a win for you right going to this big city where there's big yeah, projects and big class. yeah i mean i have a complicated relationship with fame as every person who has had some uh, has some recognizability has because i feel fantastic you know i love it that people like my work and part of me loves being stopped on the street it's an ego boost you know but part of me is very aware it's bad it's a distorting uh, factor um so yeah, it was a big part of trying to choosing to leave London because I was getting um, quite ubiquitously recognised or whatever the word is. That was like um, a, a decision we made, um, and and that was good actually. Uh, it's funny though; you do feel the loss of it. You know, you mm. do get addicted to the attention. And when I moved to LA, even though I very consciously did it to to get away from that attention, it's a it buggers you. That that's why you have to be careful with it because of that feeling of like no one's recognizing me. I'm not special <laughs> here, and it's it's hard. It's a thing you have to manage. You know, like you have to keep slapping yourself on the wrist, going, "Mate, you're not special." But you can say it to yourself a million times if you live in a society where where you walk into a room, everyone jumps. Of course, you're going to have your brain's going to get wired to that, you know. Mm. So I've spent my last 10 years, like, um, making sure I'm not one of those people, you know. Did it, that? Did you quickly get over that, you know, like thinking just off the top of the head the the stint you had on Californication with David Duchovny yeah. and, you know, scenes with Marilyn Manson, does that inflate the ego a little bit when you're on, like, a very successful show like that, like it was? With these big names. Yeah, I don't think I realised at the time how big a show it was. I thought mm. it was just a lark, you know. Um, I think I I, uh, I love it when people like my work, you know. It means the world to me. And there's another thing you have to manage there as an artist, which is to not let that be the only source of... But the whole thing about being an artist and being known is that other people's opinion of you becomes your source of self. Mm. So so I don't know if anyone's interested in this shit, but 
when, when you get known and you're aware that people on the street are looking at you, the camera of the self, like a fucking drone, drifts away and out from you. This is why famous people are nuts, right? It's not their fault. Your, your self-camera, your sense of self, like literally just drifts away from you because you become aware psychologically that people are looking at you and therefore you start seeing yourself through their eyes slightly. It's a dislodging of the id or something, mm. right? Because you become very self-aware and you're worried about how you look and, you know, worried about what people are saying. And, but also you're vindicated. Yeah, of course they're looking at me. You know, I did, really, you know, I did good work. <laughs> um, and, then you, and then you become addicted to praise and critical success and until if you take it away, you have no self-esteem. And it's not because actors are precious snowflakes. It's just because that breaks you psychologically. It's fine not whinging about it. It's something you have to really uh, work on. So when I worked with Marilyn Manson, for example, he's a really great guy. But he's a bit bonkers. And he's bonkers because he got famous. David is a fantastic guy. He's managed to stay very rooted. And I think of other people I adore, like Mel Chisholm, Spice Girls, Mel Sporty Spice, um, and people who have got really famous. Mm. Um, And it doesn't matter how good they are. They're a bit bonkers. They're a bit, well, they're just a bit fragile because their sense of who they are and why they're okay in the world has been taken off them and is now in everyone else's hands. Mm. which is why you can be super famous and rich. And when someone's mean about you on Twitter, it can really hurt because you've handed over your self-esteem to the masses, not, not by choice, you know? So, so when I've met all these people and I've met, you know, Tom Cruise and Sandra Bullock and, you know, fucking heaps of people, it's been brilliant. But it doesn't make me want to be more like them. Mm. A lot there, there's there's like any group of people. There's brilliant ones and not so brilliant ones, and you know. But I don't. It doesn't make me go. I wish I could live in a house like this one that I'm having mm. dinner in. You know, it doesn't make me think. What I want is a massive gate and security guard. <laughs> you, know? you, you just said his name, which reminded me as well. Tom Cruise. I I've interviewed him one time, and he I mean, tell me if you disagree. He's gorgeous, right? He, he's was incredibly nice, but he seems like he's mastered fame. You know, he's walking down a red carpet. Everyone gets a phone out. He'll stop for everyone. He's got this smile on his face. Yeah. And he's just in this zone where I've, I've never seen anyone else, at least anyone that I've interviewed who's very famous, yeah. have this kind of aura about them where it's like he's just he's, – he's, he's, I don't think he was being him. It's he's No, just he, he hasn't robot. mastered fame. He's mastered PR. Mm. But, but that's – but maybe he has mastered fame. You just wouldn't know. You don't. Not many people are as kind of compulsively honest as I am. Like um, reveal. Like I don't know how to do PR at all. All I know is to like someone asks me a question, like pulling a cord on a lawnmower. Off I go. You know, which is you either find interesting if you like me, or unbelievably boring if you don't. But Tom just knows exactly what to do, and he's been so vilified for his you know, not so faith. And um, I don't know who he is. I think it would be a very strange, all, all I know is they're all just people, mm. obviously. I mean, it sounds so trite, but they genuinely are just people like everyone. It's just that 
that would be weird. I mean, he's been famous for a very long time yeah. and very, very, very famous. You just don't want to be that famous. You don't want to not be able to walk down the street and go to the shop and mm. go to the pub and go to the beach, do you? You know, it actually reminds me as well of that's when I thought, like, have you ever been close to falling in that L.A. bubble? And I remember, for what I don't even, tell me how this even happened. When Paul McCartney announced his gigantic Australian tour, mm. you got to do that one-on-one sit-down with him where mm. you announced it. And I thought, holy shit, Tim Minchin is talking to Paul McCartney. Like, he's, he's now one of the guys in L.A. Mm. Do you remember well, that experience? Because you, you, you look genuinely like... Like you were wrapped to be there. That was the best part. Yeah. If you, you know, if you were doing the interview with fucking Sonny's on and a bouncer behind you, I would have thought, okay, yeah. Tim's Tim's gone. But you genuinely look so excited to be there and to have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, I am always happy if I can have an honest chat to anyone, basically, or an honest interaction. What I'm not happy with is when a bunch of American Broadway journos put a mic in my face and go, how does it feel to be nominated for a Tony? And you're meant to say, all I've ever dreamt of is coming to Broadway and being nominated for a Tony Award. What I want to say is I've never heard of the Tony Awards till like five years ago (laughs) and they're not more valuable to me than the Olivier Awards or to the Helpmans, you know, because all that matters is audiences like my work and Secondary to audiences, I hope critics understand my work because, uh, you know, genuine, um, the way the media writes about your work does matter because it sits in history. It's they're intelligent people reflecting on your work and often they have their own biases. But you hope across as an average that it's critically acclaimed. Primarily you hope it's popularly acclaimed. And, um, and perhaps more than anything you hope you're seen, you hope your work is seen on the terms that you offered it. The awards are something someone else made up to promote themselves, really, and to try and funnel money into one show over another. And when I think that stuff, I tend to say that stuff and people really don't like it. I don't I don't say it like that. I don't say, oh, fuck awards. I just go, <laughs> oh, it's brilliant to be nominated. Thank you. I, I just hope people come and see the show, you know, and you see their faces drop because what you're meant to say is, New York is the centre of the universe and how lucky am I that I'm here, you know. Whereas being invited to talk to Paul McCartney, that's like I spent my entire youth turning the Beatles bumper songbook into, you know, thinned and yellowed pieces of paper from overuse. And I got to talk to him and I got to talk to him knowing, importantly, that he knows my work and respects me and that, and a bit, <laughs> and that, and that we could talk about stuff that not everyone can talk about because I can, I can marvel at the the harmonic complexity of what they were doing in their twenties, and I, I have, I guess, I have a, an angle on how hard it is to write lyrics or whatever. And so I, I felt um, like even though he's God to me in a way, I felt like it was an equal exchange, mm. you know. So, <laughs> itch, you know. Um, <laughs> so. I have, I mean, I say in my song, in my album, say I'm meant to be promoting my album, in Talk Too Much, Stayed Too Long, in the verse I talk about, um, you know, I play the Albert Hall and Wembley. This is a very, this is a, you know, the, the context of the song. It's not quite as self-aggrandizing as it seems. But I say I've had cigarettes with knights and shot tequila with dames, found I'm more interested in laughter than in hotness and fame. And I'm not being obtuse. I'm not saying, 
oh, I don't care about fame. I mean, I, it's been brilliant. But I've met a lot of people, and the ones I like are the ones who have irony and are interesting and read books. That How much you like them doesn't correlate with how famous they are. So Paul was absolutely gorgeous. Um, but, you know, I've had dinner with Stoppard a couple of times, and he, he is God to me. And the fact that I've got to have dinner with Stoppard means so much more to me than that I've, you know, met some of the Hollywood A-listers. I mean, it just, I, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky. I had dinner once with Ian McEwan and Zadie Smith, you know. I mean, for a nerd, that stuff, you just, I will never, ever forget that stuff. Yeah. So coming home from LA then, how long did you give yourself to, for lack of a better word, grieve? How long did you say, you know what, I've got, uh, to, I've got to move on to the next project now? Well, I mean, we, the, project, um, the, the, the loss of the film has become sort of part of my narrative. That um, Groundhog Day is shutting on Broadway early, um, being sort of lost in that very busy year. Um, it was sort of a post-Hamilton Broadway bottleneck and we just, and, and we had unfortunately a falling out with one of the big Broadway producers and a falling out, you know, we got screwed. And um, uh, it, Groundhog Day didn't do what it was projected to do. It closed and lost all its money and stuff. That hurt a lot more. That's the real yeah. story. So, but that, those two um, career setbacks, um, which are just career setbacks, but, you know, you invest a lot in this stuff, so they feel like more than that. Um, plus moving away again to a new home, trying to start again, kids disrupted and not happy at school. And it, it's not so much I had to grieve one project. It just turned into a pretty tough time. Mm. I didn't give myself any time. I never give myself a break, but it took 18 months or something before I wasn't thinking about angrily about because of course there's more to this story than the one I'm telling because I don't believe in airing your dirty laundry too much but when you swim with the sharks when you go into areas where money is to be made there are nasty people you know so I had people that I was angry with and um as I say in another one of my songs and keep quoting myself, if this plane goes down, I'm pretty self-righteous when I think shit's not fair and I run arguments in my head. Um, and it took me 18 months to stop running those arguments in my head. Mm. I still come back sometimes, but not very much. Are there certain artists or actors or whoever that can, they don't, they can't be screwed by the executives? Because it does seem like there mu there must be like an upper echelon of these, yeah. Especially the, those A listers where like you can only be fucked around by executives for so long, can't you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, Tom and the the guys who produce their own work don't get fucked with, but you don't want to be there because there you also don't learn, right? So mm. I a big part of what I want to do. There's a few things I, I'm working on. One is chilling the hell out, you know, not being being able to put passion into your art without feeling like when someone mucks around with it that they're stabbing you in the heart um, or that if someone's mean to you, 
because you make the mistake of doing an interview with the Australian newspaper and all the Cardinal Pell fans get on the comments <laughs> and call you all sorts of crap. If I want to be better at not getting affected by that stuff, um, especially given I dish it out, so I need to be able to take it, which I, I'm quite good at taking it, but um, I'm still working on that. But but the main thing, and actually my my, my main thing is I, I want to keep learning. So I don't want people to stop arguing with me. I just want them to argue with me in terms of uh, the work being God. So I, I always say ideas are God, right? So I don't care when I'm in a writer's room or I'm helping create a musical or whatever, I don't care if you're like the person running to get to, if you're a runner. If you have an idea and it's the best idea, I have absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. But if you're an executive and you made, you know, you say, well, I made the best movies ever made and you come in and you say, I don't find that funny. And I go, yeah, well, I do. And I'm the director. And you go, well, I don't. I'll just go, well, you have to do better than that. Like, mm. Come up with a better joke. You know, like mm. I, 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 I don't really care about hierarchy. I, I care about ideas. And, and the trouble is if you get too big, if you get to the point where you're protected against those guys, you also tend to be devoid of uh, the good version of that. No mm. one says anything. I doubt anyone says anything to Tom. I doubt anyone says, Mr. Cruz, I've got a better idea for this. So you stop learning. I'm not saying that about Tom. Maybe he's amazing at taking information, but the risk is you stop learning. If you get so high, you're untouchable. Mm. Is it coincidence then you come home back to Australia and you do upright and you said that's the best thing you've ever done? Is that coincidence? You've come home to work on an all-original Australian project? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I the kind of irony or the the beauty of how upright functioned in my life is that um i had these all my gorgeous friends uh writing on it and um someone had offered the i wasn't it wasn't my idea but i came in with all this stuff all this stuff that's in the album as well about about being away from home and what home means and what family means and all these themes that run through upright. I don't want to sound too much like an arts grad, but that's <laughs> all I am. Um, you know, uh, and so I was able to put all my, all my discomfort um, and kind of loss of, you know, my slight, living all around the world and going through a lot of stuff like this, it slightly unearths you, right? And I wanted to put some of that feeling of unearthedness into this. And and really I got I got to write my wisdom, which is not very wise, but what I had learnt into Upright, which is because Upright's really about um, how you integrate your stumbles into your life, how, how you take grief and not setbacks and mistakes, particularly mistakes you've made, and forgive yourself and contextualise them in order to move on. That's what Upright's about, as I say. This is subtextual, at least, you know, theme stuff. And, of course, that was all stuff I had to learn because I was feeling a bit battered and I was trying to stop having these, like, arguments in my head with people I think screwed me around and stuff. I, I was trying to learn about how to not let setbacks um, uh, um, corrode you, mm. you know. And so I chucked all that into upright and 
so 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 I guess upright is good if it's good, which I think it is, um, because it has those layers in it, has comedy and a great story, but underneath it is all this uh, um, trying to unpack ideas and um, yeah, I, I I'm really really glad I got to do that show. And hopefully I'm going to do another season of it too. Yeah, and I can put a whole lot of other crap I've been thinking about. Well, that's that's like on the the concept of you know learning and ideas and character building, especially from what happened in LA. With Upright being as good as it is, it's massive success in Australia. It's big in the UK. What if the phone starts ringing again and we go back to square one? Hey, here's Tim mentioned he did this brilliant show. We need to get him over here to do this next big project. Yeah, well that, that would be fine. I mean. Interestingly, it's coincided with, um, you know, a total shit show. So, um, you know, and I, I, I sent upright to my agent, and it, like he didn't watch it for six months, and so then I fired my agent. I was going to say, and, is he still your agent? Shit. Yeah, no. I mean, without any malice, I just went, okay. He was quite new because I, I, I am like incredibly loyal i'm with the same my very first agent in australia my very first agent in england i've never stepped away from anyone except in america where i just fire people like i just they they go we're gonna we're gonna dedicate ourselves to your career and then a year goes by and they basically don't even answer the phone to my other agents and i go okay that's fine you you said you would and you didn't so that's fine no no hard feelings bye on to the next one give them a year no, you're you're all full of gas too. So I'm on to another one. <laughs> I mean, you just have to in America. You just have to not take it so personally, as I say in my show, in my song. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I actually think upright is good enough that I it look. It's all it's all happening. The thing is, the opportunities aren't there right now. In Australia right now, I have potentially Upright 2 and another television production company wanting to develop a new show that would be another vehicle for me. I'd be the star of it. I would write it and show run it. And they've got money coming out of their butts and we can make it because, I mean, I haven't signed up to this yet, but because we're in Australia and we've, you know, our government for all their interesting things have done very very well and we the population done very very well and we can work so far there's no reason that and this is something i'd say to you neil if you want to go to la don't go because someone's convinced you you haven't made it till you make it there Mm. it's just bollocks go because you love la and you want to make art with those people don't go because because you've been sold this lie that it's the centre of the freaking universe. It's, I mean, look at what's great. Look at Fleabag and freaking even upright. And there's, it's just, it's not all the good stuff is not made there. And and we're we're about to go into a purple patch. Australia's going to become. It's going to take a huge step up in the next couple of years, I reckon. As far as you mean, productions being made here. Yeah. 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 Even old Perth is thinking of building studios and, you know, they've got a single flight from the UK and Perth has a lot of what LA has, space, West Coast, dry weather, you know. You just just watch this space. The, the answer is I would love to work in America again. I haven't, you know, I, I certainly, I, I would never like run after Broadway again, but if someone wanted to put on one of my musicals on Broadway again, of course, go for it, you know. Mm. Um, 
but at the moment I'm excited about here. Can you tell us anything about season two of Upright? Is it confirmed? This is this is the no, one part where I'm going to get pesty journalist. I promise. No, no, not at all. I, I, uh, you know, I'll always tell you what I'm allowed to tell you or what I can tell you, and the answer is uh, I can't tell you anything except that. Um, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it, even if it came up, because I went. It's got such a nice arc, upright. It really is just a, a road movie, you know, chopped into eight parts, and it has a real ending to it. It didn't. It, you could very happily end it there, Definitely, and I think yeah. a lot of people are happy. Um, and I felt happy with the ending. And then the producer said, I'll oh, just come in and we'll get together with the writers again and let's brainstorm it. Of course, we came up with this really cool idea that Lucky and Meg could, you know, a good um, setup. And uh, so, yeah, um, we're going to put them back together. Uh, Maybe. They won't get back together straight away. Um, yeah, that's about, I, I can't really tell you anything, except that I'm excited by it, yeah. which I am stoked with because I wasn't sure I would be, and I certainly wouldn't do it if I wasn't. Yeah. So with the with the album out on Friday and you've got this one-off concert that's, how long is the string for, sorry? Is it two days? It's 48 hours. 48 so hours. it starts at 7 o'clock on Thursday. So if this... If you manage to spit this podcast out early, yep. it could be tonight. Um, but if it go, comes out on Friday, you still have 36 hours to watch it. And you just It's like ticketed. This is this new mm. – everyone's trying to find ways that we can keep making music because there's only so long you can afford to keep making stuff <laughs> for free. Um, so I've gone all out. Like I've got a 15-piece band and strings and filmed it in a studio with – you know, bunch of cameras and we've gone really hard at it and it's a, absolutely a concert for this mode for in order for people to to watch it through stream it you know but you have to buy a ticket only one ticket per household 15 bucks yeah well i've actually i've asked local and international bands and artists especially in this last six yeah. months on the the concept of live streaming and you know zoom shows in some cases do you think there is a place for any of this post-COVID, the live yeah. stream? Well, I wouldn't have known how to answer that question um, a week ago. Mm. But since we went in and taped this show, which we taped as live, I, people keep asking why, you know, it's meant to be live. Why isn't it live? I'm like, well, <laughs> we could do it live live. But if we tape it as live, straight through, no stops, we did have to stop for technical reasons, but this is the point. If it was live and someone's camera battery ran out or a light falls down the middle of a shot or something goes wrong, or in the case of me live with a Sydney Symphony Orchestra from the Opera House in 2011, the whole broadcast goes whack. You've just got no recovery and it doesn't sound as good and it doesn't look as good. So anyway, we taped it and we're like rushing it through edit. It was, I was there today seeing it graded, which means so you don't look like me, all pink and sweaty. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting the picture graded. The mix is cool. It sounds so much better and looks so much better than any of my live D- DVDs have ever looked wow. because it was made for this. It's made as a COVID virtual special. And I think it's, I think we are being accelerated into a type of genre which I think is definitely going to 
outlive COVID. And, and hopefully, and I'm absolutely sure, it won't replace the live experience. As I say on my streaming show, this, I, I, I open with a, like a monologue, right? I open talking and I say, this is made for this. This is, this is me trying to use cameras and audio to make it feel like you're sitting in the room with us, like you're in the middle of the band. And it won't, it doesn't feel like a concert and it's not meant to feel like a concert because a concert brings you other stuff, a shared experience that like beer and smelly carpets and loudness and, you know. And so it really struck me through this process and hopefully people will watch it so I can be vindicated in this suspicion that we're making something that's a totally different experience. And what you hope is that I imagine I wonder how it would work. I guess you go on tour and then at the end of your tour, you do one of these. Mm. You bring in the cameras and do it and then and people can come and watch it sort of live and then you let a couple of months go by and then you package it up and sell it as your DVD or whatever. I'm not, I'm not quite sure where it fits in the market, but I do think it's a legitimate form. Well, yeah, as someone who tours often, has there ever been a circumstance where maybe you can't tour a certain country or city or whatever? something like this could be a substitute in that case, no? Well, certainly, and certainly I've got all these fans in Russia and South America and, you know, loads of Brazilian fans and Japanese and stuff, and all they have is um, is YouTube vids, and I love that they like my stuff, but I, the difference between what you get when you come to a theatre and watch me and I trap you for 100 minutes and what you get if you see isolated bits of songs on YouTube, it's a completely, utterly different thing, you know. My, my concerts don't, aren't just a series of little songs about inflatable dolls and stuff. They have an arc and they're designed to make you uncomfortable and then to laugh and then to think and then to cry a bit. And then, you know, they, they, I really try and make them a dynamic journey, you know. So, so yeah, maybe especially because I'm trying to do lots of different things and including being a dad, maybe some, like especially this album, like, this is, it's not so bad for me. Mm. At the moment, you know, one of my kids is struggling a bit and I'd, if, if it wasn't for COVID, yay, COVID, <laughs> I would be on a world tour right now promoting this album and it would be really, really bad right now mm. with a few family dramas going on. So, yeah, who knows? Do you have any blueprint of what you would like to do for this album once COVID finishes? I mean, you said earlier, obviously, Australia seems to be in a pretty good position as far as coming out of COVID. Uh, by, by, by the time that you can get back on a live stage with the crowd, do you think you'll be too far into the next project to worry about coming back to a part together? Well, I'm going to go back further than that. I've got to go back to back. Yeah, shit. So my last tour, <laughs> yeah. back, I still owe concerts because we got yeah. shut down so we actually have dates in june you know all, all around australia and and uh, hopefully about to put some new zealand new concerts on sale the thing is with back is i can adjust it a bit but back back already had five songs for this record on it mm. um so this is the difficulty for my this is if you're bored of this podcast uh, of me rambling on already, you'll definitely get bored now because this is just boring work stuff. But um, my record company obviously wants me to tour the album, but my audience wants me to take, I, th I believe, 
the best thing to do is take these songs and make them an element of my live show, which is always meant to be a, a bit of a mix of stuff. So, um, yeah, there'll be a bit of push-pull on that, depending on who's interested on set. Once Upon a Time feels so long ago now, but it's not that long. You were meant to be on the Splendour in the Grass lineup. That was meant to, that's why this album's taken so long. I mean, what was that, July 20? That would have been July. And that was meant to be the launch. That was when this album was meant to come out. Have you you ever performed at Splendour before? No. See, that audience, that atmosphere, I was so interested to see how that would would look and sound and feel. Yeah, well, maybe I'll play next year and it will be even better because hopefully if this streaming concert goes all right and people buy the record, I mean, who knows how many people are going to buy this record? It's not, you know, uh, you know, Rule, the beautiful yeah, yeah. Yep. pop star Rule. Mm-hmm. He came to my taping because he's the boyfriend of a family friend. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, Rule's got his concert. Oh, I think he taped it last night. Anyway, he's, his streaming concert's coming out. Like, I ain't Rule, you know. <laughs> I'm not writing... You know, you're not as tall as rule. You're definitely not as tall. Festival crowds are not necessarily my crowds, but who knows? And and when I was still living in England, I was playing festival main stages. Just people liked watching me play because the the interesting thing is not it's not just that I do comedy. I'm I'm a bit of a throwback in that when you come and see one of my gigs, I have like eight or ten musos on stage and there's whole solo sections and stuff. Like music, kids these days, kids these days don't, <laughs> most most singer-songwriters now don't really play instruments. Certainly the idea of having chops, having like fancy chops. Um, for, for non-muso listeners, chops means like um, skills, like uh, um, ability and stuff. No, no, it's not really a big thing anymore. So it's actually, and I hope people find this watching the streaming concert, it, you're watching musos go off, not just me, but my players. And uh, so I don't know. Hopefully I'll do Splendour and hopefully people will uh, dig it. Mm. You know? we're, ho- we're hoping for at least a top 40 debut. I know you don't give a shit about charts or you, you don't know how much, it'll, like surely at least top 40. What does top 40 mean in Australia? I don't know. I mean, I mean the actual chart. I don't mean like the top 40 hits on Today FM. I mean, Yeah, but I don't who, – who charts it these days? I have no idea. <laughs> I know I they – I mean, I think BMG reckon they're going to – they want top 15. Or so. I, I sell a few records. Um, I'm certainly doing some press. These songs are um, – I, I, I don't get radio play because I've got told that if you want to be on rotation, your songs have to be under three minutes 20. In fact, really these days they go preferably under three minutes. Mm. I'm not interested in that form. My, my songs don't function like those songs function. My songs set up a whole scenario and there's always something else that happens, both musically and narratively. You, if you keep listening, you find the idea twists, you know, and I'm not, this shouldn't sound self-aggrandizing. It's just a slightly different genre because of all my theatre and all that and what I grew up listening to. I just don't. I'm not going to get radio play, apart from all the swearing that I refuse to replace with, you know, forget you or whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I just, so I, I'm not, not quite sure how it will function in normal measurement terms, 
but we've pre-sold a bunch of vinyl, like thousands of records. I'm so stoked. I just, I didn't even, I thought I'd just put this record out and everyone would go, oh, nice. And then I'd move on. But <laughs> people are really liking it. Oh, I'm getting some really nice feedback. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on, man. Again, it's it's been a long time coming for me. Um, it was really good talking to you, man. Was I uh, a lot? Uh, was I as exciting as you thought? Look, you were nowhere. Yeah, you were so nowhere near as nowhere near as charismatic as I hoped. Um, no, no, pinker. <laughs> Much I, pinker. I, I am going back to soaring uh, plexiglass to fix my son's backboard that the naughty neighbours smashed. Yeah, look, I didn't want. I was going to like leave that out just in case you didn't want to talk about it. But you know what? Fuck that kid. Yeah, fuck the neighbours, kid, yeah. man. Um, yeah, I quite. I, one thing COVID has done, or maybe it's just getting old, but I'm so much happier, like, just fixing stuff than working. <laughs> I just want to, like, yesterday I just completely redid the garage and, like, pulled down a wall and stuff. Like, I'm just I'm just that guy now. I'm just beardy, beardy suburban dad fixing stuff. Well, if the music doesn't work out, carpentry is always an option. I will need a lot of... Uh, <laughs> apprenticeship well, to go into professional carpentry. I hope your son likes the work you've done. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> it's really good to talk, man. I appreciate the time. Tim, thank you again, man. Congrats on the album, and I hope we can catch up soon. Not over Zoom. Yeah, in a pub. <laughs> Somewhere, face-to-face. Cheers, mate. Tim, thanks, man. appreciate it. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Green Room and thank you for Mr. Minchin for coming on this week's episode. Again, the debut album is called Apart Together. It is out on Friday and if you want to check out his live stream show, it is only up for 48 hours, so check it out. Uh, Go to themusic.com.au for all the details, buy a ticket, support the man and we hope to see him back on stages very soon and get the album. Let's get this man a top 10 entry or number one. Fuck it, let's say number one. Do the right thing. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk next week.